You know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real-life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Chasing Giants podcast with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. It's episode 127 on June, no, excuse me, July 24th. 2022 and don and i have both been road warriors the last day and uh you just rolled in from the east coast i just rolled in from southern indiana and we got a busy show for tonight we're gonna we're gonna feature another buck off of don's wall um if you can the people watching on youtube right now can see it over his shoulder we're going to talk about fall food plots but before and we're going to answer some questions but before we do that i want to hear a little bit about this trip here don well, it was an awesome trip, Terry. Uh, Twelve days I was gone, did uh, nine seminars for real-world dealers, and started in Indiana, then went to Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Maine, Vermont, back through New York, and then home last night. I got home about 2.30 this morning, but, uh, oh, I, you know, I like to meet our dealers in person, and uh a lot of times uh, that's not easy to do, but uh, these seminar tours allow me to do that because not only did I meet the dealers that were putting on these events, but some of those events had other dealers that were an hour or two away show up and uh, got to meet them there too. Lots of great people. Just uh, every place I went, just met some fantastic people. They all asked about you too, Terry. So, uh, you need to take the show on the road. Maybe now that you're retired, you can do that. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah, I met a couple of, of guys I want to do a shout out to. They were, uh, they're New York State Troopers, but they're both uh, former military. Just a couple of really great guys that I met in uh, Canton, New York at the first Bordeaux Brothers event. And their names are Brock Rowe and Jeremy Hicks. And I told them I'd give them a shout out because they're big fans of the podcast. Um, but that's just a, the beginning of a long list of great people that I met. It seemed like everywhere I, I went, I made new friends. But uh, well, I got a kind of a funny story, story about my trip that uh, I'm going to share. And. I may even make some people mad here at the beginning when I start my story, but, but just stick with it till the end. <laughs> You're <laughs> not going to make any people more mad than I did last week. So well, it's your, it's your you turn. Know, the, th the thing that stuck with me about the Northeast, you know, you get up there in Vermont and that, that that's Bernie Sanders country up there. And I, I don't think I have ever in my life seen so many rainbow flags and I pulled into this one little town <laughs> and uh, going down Main Street and, and those New England towns, you know, them houses are 200 years old. They was built in George Washington's day and the streets are narrow and 
the, the front porch comes almost out to the street, you know, and then there's only three feet between houses. People could raise their windows and shake hands with their neighbors right out the window, you know, and, uh, I come into this little town and there's these rainbow flags everywhere. And this one house had the American flag and they had replaced the, the red and white stripes with the rainbow stripes. And that got me a little bit fired up. I thought that was pretty disrespectful. Well, then I pull into the, uh, the motel I was going to later that day and, uh, I'm sitting there in my truck, I'm on my phone. So before I go in, you know, I'm finishing my call and these two dudes get out of this car next to me. And I thought they was a couple of businessmen. Maybe they were, I don't know. They I mean, they were dressed in dress clothes and they looked to be in their mid forties, really clean cut and stuff. And they get out and they start walking to the, uh, up to the motel and then they join hands and they walk hand in hand. And the one dude closest to me just sneered at me like, like, how dare you look at us, you know? So by the time the, the couple of days of this up there, I was pretty fired up on the rainbow crowd, you know? <laughs> and, uh, oh, I got, to, I, I was, I was all primed for a, for a rant on here about the rainbow people. I, I'm just going to call them the rainbow people. Cause I don't know how many new letters they have in their alphabet this week, but, uh, anyway, <laughs> I was prepared for a rant. <laughs> I was prepared for a rant, but, but yesterday I had a, you know, when I got done there at Kanajahari, New York, I had a 13 hour drive home and uh, man, I mean, I'm one of them guys, I could drive to California and I don't even need to turn the radio on because my mind's always working. I'm always thinking about something. And so, you know, I'm really, I'm thinking about the trip and all the people I've met and how great it was and everything. And I start thinking about these rainbow people and, uh, you know, a thought occurred to me that uh, maybe maybe you can share your thoughts here too but you know the thought is that i don't think i've ever met a gay amish person have you you ever met a gay amish person i don't think nope. they exist nope i don't think I, so. I don't think they exist and here's where the whole story is going to turn on us <laughs> so I, <laughs> I can tell <laughs> I can tell by looking at you. you have no I have idea no idea in. where this is going, everybody. Um, but I tell you what, my so, commitment to everybody that listens to this podcast, I edited out my comments <laughs> last week. I promise you, I will not edit this one out because this one's going to this no, one's gonna go gonna sideways. To, no, you're not going to need to edit this out. We're going to get her back on track here. So, you know, I'm thinking about all these rainbow flags I've seen. I start thinking that I've never seen a a gay Amish person. And I start thinking, why is that? Why, why is there no Amish gay people? And it, it, and it came to me. The reason there is no Amish gay people is the father, the Amish fathers stay in the home. They discipline their children. They teach them right from wrong. And, and I got to thinking these gay people, I, I'll bet you the majority of them came from homes without a good father figure. I'm sure it's not a hundred percent, but I bet a lot of them did. And, uh, you, you know, the Amish that that's the fathers stay home and, and there's discipline in the home. Uh, kids are taught right from wrong. Can you imagine some Amish kid coming home with purple hair and his pants down halfway down to his knees and, and a flat build cap on half cocked sideways and a, just strutting into the home while his dad would grab him by the shirt collar and drag him out to the woodshed and, and they're taught right from wrong. So I got to thinking, you know, I'm, I'm on a 12 hour trip here, Terry. So 
this gets pretty deep before I get home. So I'm thinking, you know, and and uh, I think uh, how important it is to have a, a good father in the home. And I start thinking about our platform here. And we got a lot of young guys that listen to this platform. And actually, while I was at one of the events, I was talking to uh, Lincoln Ron. Ron, he's he's the owner of Packer Max. Uh, you've probably seen those um, little cold packers that you you fill them full of water and to put to add weight. Super good guy, man. This guy is fantastic. And him and I had a, a good conversation about this at one of the events, and um, because he's from Michigan and. And uh, he, he commented on all the rainbow flags we were seeing, too. <laughs> and, you know, we got to talking about how important it is for the father to be in the home. And, uh, you know, he comes, um, he's divorced and has kids from a previous marriage. And as am I, um, my oldest daughter is from a previous marriage. And, and he was talking about, you know, even though his he divorced his ex-wife, he stayed as active as he possibly could in his kids' lives. And I did the same with my daughter. I mean, um, not to put myself above anyone else, but when she was in school, I, I honestly think that I probably attended more of her school functions than any other father in her class. I mean, I, I tried to always be there for her. And I'm, I'm not saying that that's the reason that she turned out good is because I was there. Um, I, I said many times that I think she turned out to be a great person in spite of her parents, not because of them. She came from a really bad home situation because her mother and I just absolutely did not agree on anything. We butted heads her entire childhood. And, um, you know, it was, you know, I, I think I got the raw end of the deal on many things, but she's the one that really did. She's the one that paid the, the hardest price. But today, you know, I, I, I'm so proud of her because she she's like the best mother to her two boys that I've ever seen. And she's going to make sure that those boys don't have a childhood like she did. And my son-in-law, Corey, her husband, same way. I mean, those two are dedicated to raising a couple of godly young men. And it, all this started with the rainbow flags. You know, I told you I was going to get, I was going to turn this thing around, but, uh, the father is so important in the home and there's a lot of young guys listening to you and me right now. And it's, you know, I, I didn't get into the, the hunting industry to be a role model. I, I didn't get in, into the hunting industry to have a platform. I was just trying to make a living doing something I enjoyed, but God has given you and I this platform. And yesterday on that drive home, the more I thought about it, the more it hit me that you and I have a responsibility to the listeners. These young guys that look up to us for deer hunting information, you and I have an opportunity to, to provide them a whole lot more than just information to help them kill their next big deer. And, and I think it's so important that, that we share with them that, you know, it, it's tough today. I mean, it, gas prices over five bucks a gallon. Um, all kinds of weird things going on in our society that you and I didn't have to deal with when we was like in our twenties or, or early thirties or whatever. And you, you know, these, you young guys that are listening to this, th those kids that you're raising, um, 
you are such an important influence on their lives that, you know, stick it out. I, I know when it, how it gets tough because I lived through it. Um, my ex-wife and I, we were in court many times fighting for custody over our daughter and uh, we couldn't agree on anything. And the one that paid the price was my daughter. And it's only by the grace of God that she turned out to be the young lady that she is today. It's not because of me. Um, but I know the struggles, um, you know, of being divorced and having a child, paying child support. And uh, so all you young guys, I want you to, to listen to this. And if you're in that situation, put your child first. There's a lot of times where I did not put my daughter first. I put my own wants first. And, uh, you know, I would think that I was getting the raw end of a deal. And I, I was just so intent on my situation that my daughter actually came second when she should have been first all along. And I, I just, I, I want any young guy listening that's in a similar situation to know that uh, I, I know what you're going through. It won't last forever. There's an end to it. And, you know, I, I've, hey, <laughs> this started with the rainbow flag. It has absolutely nothing to do with deer hunting, but the, 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 the platform that God has given us just really struck home yesterday on that drive home as I got to thinking about it. And it even started thinking about that situation, you know, that you went on your rant about last week. And uh, the, the person that, that, that made the post on my social media, I, I just asked for all the listeners to pray for, for him and, and that family because you know, it, it does no good for us to go back and forth and bicker about, about things. And you and I, and I, I got to hand it to you. You, you hold my feet to the fire. Iron sharpens iron. And without you, I, I would have been using all kinds of dirty words and, and <laughs> flipping out, but I, I just kind of let you handle it your way. And, uh, I've just realized that we've got a responsibility you and I, because we've been given this platform and instead of, I mean, you made the right call by editing that last week's uh, podcast. I, I really, when it first happened, I, I was not real happy with you for doing it, <laughs> but the more I thought about it, it's like, you, you know what? God has Terry in my life because Terry's holding my feet to the fire and he's making me become a better person. So anybody that's listening, if you see some idiot get on my Facebook or social media and make a, a stupid comment towards me, don't fire back at him, please. Just just ignore it. I'll delete it when I see it, but, but say a quick prayer for him because the individual and the family that's responsible for a lot of this, they have some serious issues. And, this is, and I'm not saying that to, as a knock or a bash on these people. Um, I, I really do hope they get their lives in order and they find happiness somewhere because it's very obvious they, they're miserable right now. So, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I, it just struck me on the way home that, uh, we have an opportunity to make a positive impact on people's lives way beyond deer hunting. And, uh, God's given us this platform. And I think the more that we use it for good, um, the more blessings we can bring to, to other people. And Lester's feet is a, is a part of that, but 
we can go way beyond that. There can be someone listening, some young man listening to this, that you and I can share some of our life experiences that have absolutely nothing to do with deer hunting that they can relate to. And they can know that, Hey, these guys went through that and yet they pulled their life together and, and made something of their life down the road. So, you know, any young man that's, um, struggling with a, a relationship with the child's mother or whatever, whether you're married to her or not, um, there's hope. It, it's not going to last forever, but I just encourage you to put your child first. Um, forget about your finances, forget about everything else, put that child's well-being first and, uh, it, it won't last forever. And down the road, when you get my age, I'm going to promise you, you're going to be glad that you put that child first into my story terry that's that, that's i went down several rabbit trails there and it all started with a rainbow flag uh, but you and i both know that when you have that time driving um your mind races and we think about different things not only about the whitetail woods but you know i think we grow a lot in our faith when we uh, give ourselves a reality check and you know there's a lot of cultural things that are different between you know our lifestyle and the, and the lifestyle of the Amish or the Mennonite or the, um, you know, but I respect so much of that community, the more I've gotten to know it. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I had some perceptions, um, you know, before I really got to know some really good people that have become lifelong friends of ours, um, about their way of life. But you're right. The family holds themselves accountable in the community. That's the big thing. The community holds each other accountable. And, and I respect that so much out of that community. Uh, but you're right. Um, I don't, I don't think that, uh, they have near the problems that we do because out of, out of any religious group, I've never seen anyone stand more united as far as a direction of their community. So tip of my hat to all those listening on MTech right now, you're a great example to us in a lot of ways. And we, uh, appreciate and covet your friendship. So with that, let's take a Absolutely. quick break and listen to a spot from Osseo Gear. Osseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched, pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations. Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, built for comfort, and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com. That's A-S-I-O-Gear.com to start shopping. Osseo Gear, prepare to be invisible. All right, well, thanks to Joe Miles and all the team. He is still putting out some great content on his social media and YouTube page, so make sure you go over and check out Osseo Gear. And um, I think they're running a sale right now, if I'm not mistaken. If not, it's going to be coming up really soon. We'll be sharing it, uh, but you're going to want to get prepped for early season and mid-season uh, camo. And uh, Don and I have been wearing it for a while now and simply some of the best gear I've ever had on. So as promised, we're going to take uh, a little bit of time on the podcast and talk about fall planting. And this is not going to be a real world commercial. Um, we may or may not use some of the products that real world offers as an example, but there there's always a misconception. And, and we had one of our dealers reach out to us this week and said, why are you sharing stuff on social media about 
planning fall plots. It's got everybody thinking they're behind. And, you know, we obviously it's it's too late to promote soybeans. So we start talking about people preparing. So I'm going to I'm going to tee you up on a couple questions. You don't know what I'm getting ready to ask you, but um, um, you explain this very well. Um, part of the reason we're trying to educate people on the types of products right now is there's a lot of guys that had their spring plot fail. So talk a little bit about how fall plots can be the plan B or backup plan from our spring plots, and then we'll get into actual timing of planning and that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, you, you know, uh, one thing I've noticed with it being in the food plot seed business is that everybody seems to want to plant in the summertime. The spring plots that should be planted in like April and May, people want to push that into June and July for whatever reason. And I see it every year. And, and then the fall plots that should wait till, in a lot of cases, till the 1st of September, at least the last week of August, people want to plant them in July. And there's two distinct planting periods, and one's in the spring, one's in the fall, and you need to time them for your region. So um, if you've planted a spring plot when it should have been planted in April and May, there, there's a lot of different things that could have wiped it out. It could have been weather. It could have been deer browse pressure. It could have been, uh, you know, it was overtaken with weeds, just one thing after another. But uh, if that happened to you, I mean, right now you still got plenty of time to clean that plot up, spray it, kill the vegetation, whatever you're going to do, disc it up, till it up and, and get a fall plot in. Okay. So, um, let's assume that somebody's bean plot, uh, this happened to you actually a couple times over the years, if I'm not mistaken, I think you had some food plots fail the year you killed Smokey, uh, because that food plot was all in deadly dozen that was normally in beans. I think you had a drought that year and, and the, the plot didn't work out. So you used your fall to still provide a food source. Uh-huh. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about timing. You've used an analogy many times about fall planting and an interstate that goes across the country as a rule of thumb. And let me, let me first clarify this. This isn't taking into account, um, people that start their hunting season in September 1st, like Kentucky, this isn't taking into consideration the diversity that you may or may not have on your farm this is just general rule of thumb as a starting point for the product to not mature and die in the winter it's a get it planted in just enough time to where it grows it's great browse it goes dormant in the winter and is a food source in the spring before you can plant so let's go through that scenario as a general rule of thumb well, the the best rule to follow is you want to plant your fall plot 45 days, maybe 50 days ahead of the typical first frost date. Now, if you don't know what the first frost date is, another general rule is Interstate 70 cuts across the country right through Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, uh, St. Louis. If you're a long Interstate 70, you're going to want to plant your fall plots about the 1st of September. For every 100 miles you go north of Interstate 70, 
you're going to want to move that planting date up a week. So if you're 200 miles north, you're going to want to be planting about August 15th and, and so forth. But uh, if you can figure out or find what that average first frost date is and then back up 45 to 50 days, that'll put you right there in the idea window too. And like Terry said, the problem with planting too early is that the plants get too mature and they lose a lot of their palatability. Um, the deer just don't hit them as well. You don't want your um, cereal grains and such to be a foot tall when season opens. Um, four inches would be a whole lot better. Those young plants are a whole lot more tender um, and the deer just like them a lot better. They're higher in nutrients that that young tender growth is. So you're going to have a whole lot better success. And the thing of it is, you're not really planning. You need to consider that you're not really planning for opening day. So if your opening day is October 1st, you know, you're not going to hunt October 1st and be done for the season. You're probably still going to be hunting November 1st. So even though your plants may be really short October 1st, you still got, in most cases, plenty of time before that first frost. And that first frost is not going to kill the plants in a lot of fall planting plots anyway. It's just going to slow down their growth. Uh, those days are going to warm up and that sun's going to get them growing again. Um, but the frost will kill, you know, a lot of weeds and things. So just a couple of general rules to follow. The, um, the other thing that I think is important, and again, I promised that this wouldn't be a real world commercial, but it, it might end up talking a little bit of using it as an example. Diversity, I think, is one of the biggest keys to fall food plots because you can have a small micro plot like people try to, you know, talk about and have just as much attraction with a inch tall plant as you can planting it too early and having a six or eight inch tall plant. And one of the things that we've been toying around with the last couple of years, I guess maybe even more than that is uh, a tip that you uh, you've been talking about is throwing a little bit of soybeans in with a fall plot because, you know, it, it doesn't have to be real world soybeans, high oil. It doesn't have to be roundup ready soybeans. You can find whatever soybeans you can find from a local farmer and mix that in with your fall plot and those first sprouts of soybeans that come up are the best magnet that you can get but the other thing it'll do is actually take the browse off of your other plants and let them get a little bit more established yeah so that, that's a great way to get the deer to start hitting your plot um, you don't want to use uh, too many though i mean 10 to 20 pounds per acre is that's a lot be fine yeah yeah but, and you got to remember also the first frost is going to kill those soybeans. So right. they may compete with the rest of your plot for just a little bit. But once that first frost hits, those soybeans are going to be done. But the people that make a good, diverse fall food plot are going to intentionally put some products in there that aren't palatable and attract and have attraction until later on in the winter. You don't want. So if we went out and planted a whole field of purple top turnips or sugar beets or whatever for a fall plot. Uh, there will be a point in time where that field is like a magnet, but you're probably in a very short window of when that will be. So you want to have diversity in your fall food plot to where there's at different times always something spiking for attraction, whether you want to get into the weeds with tissue analysis and say that's feed value of soluble protein or whatever. 
um, having having a rotation or diversity inside of your food plot, it's going to do two things. It's going to have them come in there all the time, and it's going to keep them from mowing the thing off in through two days when it's palatable, uh, you know, because they're only going to pick and choose what they want to eat as they go across it. Yeah, and you know when I was uh, at these events, three of the the events at Bordeaux Brothers, um, Ray Reeves was there giving food plot seminars, and he had some really good uh, tips and ideas to share. And one thing that I really agreed with Ray on was that you don't want when you're planting a fall plot, you don't want to have a monoculture or one plant species in those fall plots. Uh, a mixture of cereal grains, your brassicas. Um, the more you can diversify, the better it is. And, and, you know, my favorite fall planted plot is deadly dozen. Deadly dozen's got 12 different plant species in it. And there's going to be something that attracting those deer from the time it first germinates throughout the entire hunting season, clear into the next spring. But those plants that are attractive at a certain time, it's going to change as the season goes on. So, you know, right out of the gate, they're going to be hitting things like those Austrian winter peas um sugar beets um the oats but as you get into to colder weather it's going to shift and when it gets really cold that's when they're going to start hitting things like the turnips and the the radish so that the plant within the species that the deer are hitting at any particular time is going to change as the season goes on yep and uh you know I used to be guilty of this. I used to say, well, I'm from Kentucky. Our opening day is the 1st of September. I have to risk it and plant the first week of August to be established. And, you know, first of all, the guys that are trying to cheat it a little bit for that opening day, um, I think you still need to focus a little bit more on diversity and not go with one product or one planting time. You know, there, there might be just a clover strip that you need to put in as a border that you've maintenanced all year and that's your that's your september 1st and then you know for opening weekend and then plant the rest a little bit later i think the more that you can hedge you know we're, we're all talking about herd health we're all talking about trying to do what's right for the deer i think it's a little selfish i don't know if selfish is the right word but putting all of our eggs in our in one basket for the entire health of your herd to have something to eat all year long so that I have a four inch tall food plot September 1st is I, I just don't, I don't buy that anymore. I would rather, um, come up with another game plan, whether it be supplemental feeding, or if you're, if you don't mind hunting with bait, whatever, come up with another plan with different products to give those deer food source from January to late February, early March for that green up. Otherwise, otherwise you're hurting your herd a whole lot more in that pivotal time of the year by planting too early, they won't have anything to eat. And, and the reason diversity is so important is, is that each plant species has a different nutrient makeup. So each plant is going to have, it's going to be like higher in different nutrients than another plant. A deer can balance his diet if he has the ability. I mean, or if he has the opportunity, it, each plant like in, I'll go back to deadly dozen. There's 12 plants there, 12 different plant species. Each one of those 12 has a different makeup, nutrient makeup. So, you know, one may be high in one vitamin, another one's high in a certain mineral and the deer can pick and choose and they will crave what they need and they can balance their diet 
Um, we could even tie in uh, fetal programming here. You get those does feeding in your deadly dozen plot. They, they're on a balanced diet. They're going to, you know, go into the rut in a whole lot better shape. Yep. So the the main goal, I think, for people right now is to get their plan together. Now's the time to evaluate your fall or your spring food plot. I got a couple areas. We were talking today about some test corn product that we had in the stages it is in. Um, my sweet corn is going to be ready um, probably the end of this coming week. So uh, even though we have it out on the farm, not in an area where the deer are at, I'm still going to put a fall plot back in where the sweet corn was. And then I got some that the planter just didn't do very well. I'm going to terminate that and put into a fall plot. So I'm getting my plan together right now, evaluating what worked and didn't work from spring acquire your stuff get your now's the time to get your ground ready you know you can if you're working ground if you're going to no-till whatever now's the time to get the plan ready and have everything ready to go because once you get past that middle week of august and you're sitting there at the 26th 27th and you got rain in the forecast and we just talked about you're right on i-70 for september 1st if i got rain in the forecast on on July or August 24th, 25th, I'm putting it in the ground, you know, because Mm -hmm. you, you need to plan around rain. Uh, it, it happens every year. Uh, people get really dry in different parts of the country in September. So being able to plan around a rain is vital. Yeah, for sure. But you know, don't jump the gun. If you see a rain coming the first week of August, no, uh, don't go out and plant in, wait till right you're shooting yourself in the foot um get so, prepared but but wait for the right planning time so you teed that up perfect for me because that's the other that's the last point i wanted to make about planting food plots for the fall too early and Dwayne hopkins did a really good job of talking about this i think i forget what where we were at but the worst thing that could happen is you plant your fall food plot and you get one of these pop-up thunderstorms that just barely gives the ground a soaking and you've planted that food plot and then what will happen is it's just enough moisture for that seed to swell and crack and then it turns 110 degree heat index sun beating down on it for three or four weeks you're that plant's going to die it's better for that seed to lay in there with no moisture for a period of time and, and wait to germinate than it is to get one of these little showers that's just enough for the seed to swell, crack, and then you're gonzo for the whole year. Yep. Well said. All right. Well, uh, I think we, I hope that we answered a lot of people's questions about fell food plot. It seems to be a topic. It's almost like opening day of hunting season. Hey, thanks for Quiet Cat here in our virtual showroom space where you can connect with a product expert and learn all about our bikes, our accessories, good and what by, makes Quiet uh, Cat the leader in off road so, uh, electric bikes. Yeah, get your game plan together today by clicking in the link below or going to quietcat.com slash me or what your fall goals are and align with those. With that, we're going to take a quick break. All right, Don, uh, before we get on to the questions today, um, you mean to remind everybody to stay tuned to at the end of the podcast, we're going to talk about the buck that is over Don's left shoulder. 
and uh, talk about that story as we continue to move down the wall of his trophy room. Um, I do want to apologize. Today, our goal was um, to have the winner of the Lester's Feet Truck on the podcast tonight. But with Don traveling and coming in late last night, me traveling and just walking in the door and hitting record, we're going to punt that till next week because we might have to record that at some other point with the guy's schedule. So we want to get him on the podcast. You're not going to want to miss the story of what happened when this guy got home with the truck. Um, I think it's just another testament of God opening doors with different opportunities. Uh, but you're not going to want to miss that. Um, I do want, we had uh, probably about seven or eight contacts of new families. Um, uh, we got we got a lot of people in this country hurting. And um, uh, when you talked about earlier about the rainbows and then going on to the dads, my my mind immediately went to those those moms and dads in the hospital watching those kids right now. So um, mm-hmm. whether you're a young person, like Don said, that's trying to make decisions on how to navigate the trials of life, uh, also be praying for the people that are in the midst of the sinking ship. And uh, that, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do with the with the ministry of Lester's feet is try to talk to people on not necessarily blaming God for the situation, but being able to lean on God when those situations arise, and it makes it a whole lot easier. So with that, mm-hmm. let's move on to the first question of the night. I'll share my screen. You should be able to see it now. Yeah, the first one comes from David Campbell from Butler, Pennsylvania. Uh, he says, Don and Terry, thank you for all you do, especially for Lester's feet in the podcast. I recently was listening to a podcast in which Dr. Strickland was on, in which they were discussing deer movement as more than what people think. Dr. Strickland spoke of hunting the same stand five or 10 times until an opportunity arises. You are a proponent of low pressure, minimal human intrusion, and basically not hunting in stand until the time is right, in which increasing this in the stand decreases odds being in your favor what are your thoughts on this as it seems to kind of go against your own thoughts unless i'm misconstruing your approach and dr strickland's statements from the podcast i put the episode and podcast below for reference well david first of all i have uh, the utmost respect for dr strickland um he is very um scientific in his approach to things uh he will not use terms like always never um he always uh throws in disclaimers when we're discussing things uh so i i don't want this to come off sounding like uh i I don't have respect for dr strickland because i absolutely do i consider him uh a, a great friend him and i work together on multiple things this happens to be one of those things where his science um goes against my findings or my experience and also against the experience of a lot of very successful whitetail hunters Um, i think if you would ask anybody that's been hunting for um, a few decades and has a wall full of mature bucks i think to a person they would agree that the first time you hunt a particular stand your odds of success are the best now with that said 
there are situations and uh, where that might not be the case. And a case in point from my own um, career, if you will, would be the Trump buck. Uh, those of you who remember the story of, of me hunting for Trump, the year I shot him, I, I shot him on the 10th hunt, uh, not from the same stand, but from the same uh couple of stands and it was a fairly small property at least the cover on the property was small um, he was a buck whose personality caused him to range over a wide area uh, so i was just instead of chasing that buck around and hunting different properties within his home range i decided to just camp out on the, the one property i felt would give me my best odds and just stay there and wait for him to show up that is something that I had never done with any other buck before and never have since, but he was a unique animal. Um, the bucks that I'm hunting, I pretty much narrowed things down. So I know when to be there. Now, for example, um, I had a buck that was utilizing my home property, but that buck would not show up until about mid October each year. Um, he would summer elsewhere in a bachelor group, and then uh, he would show up here about October 15th to the 19th was generally when I'd get my first picture of him. So if I was to start hunting that deer on October 1st and just keep plugging away and cut plugging away, yeah, I might get him on the fifth or 10th hunt, as you described. However, if I know the buck I'm hunting, I don't have to waste those first five or 10 hunts. I know not to even go hunting until the 15th of October in that particular case. Um, I'm just, the, the more experienced I become, the bigger proponent I become of learning everything you can about the individual buck you're targeting. Um, I, I'm not sure if Dr. Strickland's study was focused on hunting individual bucks or hunting bucks of a particular size or age class or, or what the study was. I didn't have time uh, to listen to the link that you provided, but uh, Dr. Strickland looks at things from a totally different angle than I do. He tries to, to analyze it from a scientific point of view. Um, and, and I look at it from a practical um, experience. You know, my decades of experience um, guides me and in, in how I approach hunting mature bucks. Well, I think that, um, I think there's two things that pop into my head. Number one, you referenced the Trump buck and camping out there. I remember getting those, uh, texts from you sixth time hunted, never seen a Tweety bird, never seen a squirrel okay. eighth time that, that place that you were hunting was out in the middle of nowhere so there was no worry of intrusion or bumping deer. I mean, you were either going to see him or you weren't going to see anything. So I don't want people to, you know, people on, that listen to this podcast, they hold us accountable. They say, well, wait a second. On episode 32 at the 22-minute mark, you said this. I mean, they, yeah. they, they hold our feet to the fire when it comes to that. So in the situation of the Trump buck, it was out in the middle of absolutely nowhere that you could get in and out. And like I said, either he was going to walk by or he wasn't, it wasn't a normal situation of one of your properties where you hunt that, you know, you were putting pressure on that by camping out. So that's the first thing I want to clarify to everybody that's scratching their head. 
The second thing is I think uh, sometimes science and Dr. Strickland's research is more just trying to understand the habitat and the deer movement and what are certain things that are going on inside of an ecosystem. When you are looking at hunting a specific buck, you're taking, we, we've talked about how every buck's different anyway, right? You're, yep. you're taking all of that completely aside and honing in on what this specific buck's pattern is and hunting that pattern. And people just have to understand the difference between those, you know, he's looking at it from a macro level at 30,000 feet and saying, this is what all of the deer are doing. Don's looking at, as I understand the personality of Terry Peer, and he has to go have a code Brown at 10 PM every day, unless he eats <laughs> breakfast. And if he eats breakfast, he has a code Brown at 9 AM. And, and that's, that's how I'm going to plan my day. That's how, so that's <laughs> complete difference in uh in what you guys are going after so i don't necessarily think either of you are wrong it's just how you guys are looking at it with what you do inside of the world of deer hunting uh he he comes from a way different perspective being from the academia world yeah and uh you know i don't mean this in a negative way towards dr strickland but if if his approach that that you're you're describing and again i haven't listened to it so i don't I, I didn't hear it myself but if that approach is so valid every bow hunter in north america should be shooting big deer but i guarantee you <laughs> there are tens of thousands of tree stands that get burnt out every year by people hunting them over and over and over and you also got to factor in access it is did his study um determine if if these stands had good access if you've got good access you can hunt a stand day after day after day but if access is just a little bit questionable um you know you might have only a narrow window um for example i got stands where any let's just say any westerly wind will work southwest northwest straight west any westerly wind works that those can be hunted a whole lot more than other stands I have where it absolutely has to be Southwest straight West won't work. Northwest will not work. It has to be Southwest for that stand. So how does he figure all that in to this study you're talking about? There's way more variables. And, and another thing I want to throw out there. And again, this is absolutely not a slam on Dr. Strickland, but there is a lot of information put out by people that and I'm not even talking about this specific situation. I'm just talking in general. There's a lot of information put out there by people trying to tell you how to do something that they have never done. So a guy says to kill big bucks. Uh, if you want to kill the king buck, you got to stomp around the woods like a drunken fool, making as much noise as you can and climbing your tree as fast as you can. And you within 10 minutes, the king buck will be there. Well, that's nonsense. It's, it's, and you're probably laughing about that example, but there's guys on the internet that bow hunters and deer managers are giving a lot of credibility to whose ideas are every bit as ridiculous. And while I was traveling, while my mind was rolling this week, I was literally taking out my phone at times and taking notes because I came up with some fantastic ideas for videos that we're going to be doing on the Whitetail Master Academy. And I'm going to blow away some of these ideas that, you know, there's things that I disagree with with some of these bigger name people, but I've, 
it, it was hard for me to come up with the the explanation to make my point and make it valid. And but and there's a couple of things that came to me. The whole summer dough factory thing. I'm gonna blow that thing out of the water with some real life examples. It's not gonna be just oh Don says this. No, Don has killed giant bucks doing it this way. The other guy that's preaching the other way. Let's see the bucks he's killed doing it his way. It, it's easy to get online and and stand there and you know go off about the ideas you have for managing a property, whatever. Let's see the results. Show us the bucks that you killed doing it that way. Give yourself you, you know some credibility um, with bucks on the wall, and then we'll listen. Okay, ran over. Ran over. And and the most important takeaway from that is you got Don and Dr. Strickland who work very, very closely together, that respect each other, that both know that there's a different uh, kind of, uh, I would guess, uh, bookends and what they're trying to do, and they still get along. That's that that's unheard of, right? You can have a difference. Well, he's respect, respectful, and I have a tendency to show the same respect I'm shown, and you know, when you got a guy that uh, every time you say something on your social media, he's got to make a video and post it saying just the opposite as to poke fun of you. Well, that doesn't sit well with me, and I'm ready to fire back at him. <laughs> just my nature. Question number two. <laughs> People are going to think I had too much windshield time in the last 12 days, Terry. I know. I think that. <laughs> um. This next question comes from Alan Miller from Dundee, Ohio. He says, hi, Don and Terry. My question is on supplemental feeding. I am in a state where I can supplementally feed and have been feeding year round with the mixer Don suggested for me when he consulted on the farm. The feed has mineral mixed in with it. My question is, do you think a deer will continue eating the supplemental feed with mineral in it? even after their body has reached the right amount of minerals they need and the rest will just go to waste? Or do you think they'll just stop eating the feed once they've reached the right amount of minerals? Thanks for the awesome podcast and everything the two of you do for Lester's feet. Well, Alan, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because, um, you know, a lot of food sources, be it a plant that a, that a deer's eating in a food pot or whatever, contains multiple nutrients so in other words it might have vitamins it has mineral um, take corn for example corn's got a certain level of protein in it it's got a certain level of fat certain level of carbohydrates it, it's got some uh, calcium in it well it, it's impossible for an animal to consume just the precise amount of each of those nutrients some of them are going to be over consumed some of them are going to be under consumed so the situation you describe, probably what's going to happen is he's going to eat as much of that supplemental feed as he desires. And then if he still is lacking some minerals, he may go to the mineral lick and supplement that feed with the mineral. So it's, it's a very difficult question to answer. I think the, the key is that you want to provide both the supplemental feed and the mineral and just allow them to balance their diet the best that they can. I, I don't know that a deer is going to reach his required amount of calcium and then just stop eating. Um, he very well could overconsume and 
um, you know, what the, what his body does not utilize will be just flushed out with the waste. You know, early in my sales career, they taught me that when a customer asks a question, usually their first question isn't their real question. And I'm wondering if Alan isn't getting to the real question being here is should he stop feeding supplemental feeding mix, you know, because it's an investment at a certain point in time because it doesn't do any good. All I can do is tell you what I've experienced here in Kentucky. Um, there will be certain points in time where you see intake levels fluctuate based on what plants and what's going on. For instance, as soon as I see the mash crop, all the acorns drop in an oak flat that's very close to one of my feeders, I will see a drop in how much they're at the feeder. Um, so I do think that it fluctuates a little bit based on other food available, but I can tell you that even the mature bucks that eat out of my feeder with uh, supplemental feeding will eat year round out of it. So um, my, my, my goal is to have it out there as absolutely much as I can. Um, I, I don't think anybody can draw a line and say after September 28th at noon, it doesn't, it doesn't have a return on investment. I think they're going to eat it as much as they can. Um, but you know, like right now, I'm not kidding, Don. They're going through about 40 pounds of mineral a week. This is the absolute peak season uh, that, I mean, I've, I just poured a bag out and I can see it on the cell cam and it's completely gone. Now, some of it's leached in, so it's not to say that it isn't there. But, I mean, they are hammering the mineral right now. That'll that'll start to wean off of them in a in a month or so. Right. Well, I, I know Alan personally. uh uh, been to a couple different farms for him there in Ohio, and he's been to the master class. Actually, I think he's been to two master classes. Yep, he um, has. And he's he's serious about uh, managing his deer herd for you know maximum health and antler growth. So he he's just trying to to figure it out to you know so so he can make the the best plan for managing his farm. Yeah, in states that let you leave it out, I know Kentucky we can leave it out the entire time except during turkey season. Um, I know, I think Indiana, you have to either cover your mineral side or remove the dirt. Each state's a little bit different, but um, I think as a rule of thumb, you have it out as absolutely much as you can. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on to the next question. Oh, by the way, funny story for everybody. We opened good. up we opened up that the Amish and Mennonite people that don't have access to internet could mail in questions to the to the <laughs> office. <laughs> Was it this week or last week we got a text message and uh, when you mentioned the King Buck in that last segment there, uh, it made me think somebody was trying to be a little bit funny and and talking about the King Buck and and uh, made a funny about, I forget what they said. They got a picture of a buck raising his back leg, showing his testicles, and clearly that can't be the king buck. Well, just so everybody knows, full disclosure, the ladies in the office open all this e all this mail for Don and give it to give it to him. So the girls in the office uh, kind of they got quite a saying, chuckle. They were like, "What in the world are you all talking about? That you're worried about testicles on camera?" <laughs> So full disclosure, people, if you're trying to be funny in a mail-in uh, a question submission and you mail them to real world, just know that the girls in the office are going to be watching you. All right. Question, question number three. 
Okay, this one comes from Chris Lovely from South Lebanon, Ohio. Uh, he says, hello, Don and Terry. First, I'd like to thank you for all you guys do for the hunting and general community. Both of you are awesome people and excellent role models. You think he wrote that before last week, Terry? Yeah, probably. Um, my question is, what do you think or how do you feel about using deer urine and scents that are collected and made straight from a deer farm? Well, after this week, he's probably going to know that we're, we both lack as role models. But uh, anyway, uh, um, you know, this is a question I actually gave some, or a topic I gave some thought to uh, on my travels last 12 days. So I, I covered everything in my mind as I was driving to haul them. I, was, I drove over 3,000 miles, actually. Are you serious? How many miles do you have miles. on your Victory Chevrolet truck now? Uh, over 13,000. Wow. Chris yeah, Yates, Chris... Don, has, Don has 13. I just rolled into nine, so uh, we're putting the miles on it since March, buddy. <laughs> yeah. He's, cring he's cringing so, right now. Well, at two of these events I was at, Smokey was there, Smokey uh, from Smokey's Deer Lures. And, uh, you know, him and I had some discussions about, I've actually got an idea for a new product and Smokey and I are testing some things, but I got to thinking about deer urines that people use and, and they, they buy them by the semi tankers deer hunters do every season. You know, there's just untold gallons of this stuff being poured out in the woods. And I got to thinking, let's just assume that on your property, you had 20 deer. And those, each of those deer peed five times a day. Well, that's a hundred pee puddles scattered about the woods every single day. What in the world makes you think that you can walk out there with a bottle of pee and pour it on the ground and bucks are going to come running? Um, seriously. The, so let's, let's take this a little deeper. I, in my opinion, the best deer lures are absolutely not urine-based lures. They are gland type lures and you ask any trapper what the best lures are. A trapper does not use urine to attract coyotes or foxes. Now they will use urine as like a uh, cover. Yeah. It, it removes suspicion. It lets that fox or coyote know that another fox or coyote has been there, but that's not what they're using to call them coyotes into their set. It's gland lures. Almost always it's a gland lure. And Smokey goes to, and he collects these gland or glands from the deer at a processing plant. He's got some uh, place in Ohio, I think, where they process 9,000 deer a year or something. And uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like much fun, does it? And uh, so he's he's taking these glands, he's making a gland lure. That is the type type of lure that's going to grab a buck's curiosity and pull him in. These urine-based things, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't waste my time pouring urine out. Now that, I guess in the, in the right situation, I think of the Joey buck where I took that bottle of dough and heat and I splashed it there on the trail where I knew the deer was going to be coming. And it wasn't to attract the deer to that spot. It's it was stop to him. stop him. Yeah. So if you think about it, if every deer in the woods peed five times a day, and they probably do pee five times a day, and you got 20 deer on your property, that's 100 piles of pee each and every day of the entire year. Why do you think a deer, a buck, is going to come and smell your bottle of rotten pee? And I can even take it, 
I'm telling you, Terry, I spent a lot of time on the road this, <laughs> this couple of weeks. Let me take this another direction. So I, I want to throw a human angle at this. So what smells better, a lady's perfume or her pee? If you're going to a party back when in your younger days and you was, you was trying to pick up a girl, did you, did you, was you attracted to the one that had good smell and perfume or the one that peed all over herself? <laughs> Forget the dear people. <laughs> I got a question. Okay. I, I bet you I got an answer because I thought about it on my 12 day trip. So let's assume how many hours do you think a buck would sleep during the day? You know, cause they're up roaming usually at night, not in the rut. Do you think they sleep all day? What'd you, what'd you experience with your cat? Yeah. Deer? Yeah. They lay up most of the day. They may get up a time or two and move a little bit, but they're not moving too far. So now that I'm 45, I'm starting to notice this, the older a buck gets, do you think he has to get up from his naps and pee up more often the older he gets? You know what? I didn't think about that on my trip, but I'm putting that on my list for my next trip. I'm going to give it some thought. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they don't pee more. <laughs> Do you remember when we had that guy convinced that the only way to age a buck was the distance between its butthole and the bottom of his scrotum? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, he had yeah. To, that he had to set his trail cameras up in reverse to get pictures of the rear end of him rear end yep <laughs> so oh, you young right. guys when you go to parties i want to know what are you are you smelling perfume or pee forget the deer pee people <laughs> it, it, the deer pee industry is really it's kind of like the scent elimination spray industry everybody buys it but it doesn't work <laughs> seriously <laughs> All right, question number four. Let's see if we can get you wound up on this one before we end. <laughs> um, this one comes from Tim Henrik from Sioux Center, Iowa. Don, in your experience raising deer, when do antlers reach full development? How long do they take to solidify after they stop growing? For example, has a velvet buck reached his full potential by early August? P.S. Let's go, Brandon. Well, first of all, I was reading through some Amish letters as I put the outline together for this um, episode, Terry, and I got one from a 14-year-old Amish youth, and he he wanted to know, why do I say, let's go, Brandon? <laughs> so let's move on. What was Tim's question? <laughs> oh, oh, antler development. When does it stop? So, uh, Um, Tim, we're, ro we're role models, remember? Yeah, I'm trying my best today. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, I actually wrote a blog. It's on my website. Go to Higgins Outdoors, look into the blogs on antler growth. And he referenced the captive deer that I had. When I had those deer, different bucks grew different. So some bucks literally by early july they were done they had all the growth they was going to get other bucks were still growing well into august mid-august you know they're still growing um how long it takes to to solidify um 
I think that, that varies buck to buck too, because no matter it seemed with them captive deer, no matter if they were an early growth buck, you know, where they, they did it all their growing early in the growing season, or they drew it out over a longer period of time, they all seemed to shed their velvet right about the same time, about the same week. So it, it pretty much told me that some bucks, you know, it, I, I don't know if it took them longer to solidify those velvet antlers than it did others. I'm guessing so because those bucks that were still growing in mid-August, they were still shedding their velvet the 1st of September. So apparently they must have, their antlers must have solidified um, a lot quicker. But if you go to HigginsOutdoors.com, look under the blog section and find that, um, that blog post that I made. I actually used photos of some different captive deer and those photos were taken on the same days. So there was deer that was, I don't remember what the dates were, but let's say it was July 1st. And there was bucks with the photos from July 1st that were pretty much done growing and others that had a long way to go. And so each buck is, is different. All right. So here's a couple of follow-up questions for the guys that have gotten some trail camera footage of, or pictures of a buck. Um, if I get a picture of a buck and I see his frame, say he's got a 16 and a half, 17 inch inside spread. Will that buck get any wider? No. So once we have the frame established, the, the frame is going to get bigger. Now, if I'm looking at the points on the deer to say, is he going to get taller? How can I look at the tip of that point and know whether it's close to being done or it's got more to go? Well, if, if it's starting to come to a point, it's about done. It's pretty much done in most cases. If it's still really rounded and if it's really dark on the end, then, you know, that's a, a antler tine that's still growing and, and has quite a bit of growing to do. So the, all the people that are back there looking at their trail camera pictures tonight after their Sunday afternoon card pull and saying, how big is this buck going to be? Uh, we're not going to add frame width or size, uh, but we can add time length. But look at whether it's pointed out like a pencil or whether it looks like a ball back going up there and a big rounded nub. So that'll, that'll, give, you some, in. that'll give you some indication of how much we can't tell how much more it's going to go. Um, mm -hmm. But but we can tell whether it's done or close to being done growing. So, right. I don't know how that applies to the king buck, but. Uh... I never had a king buck in my pens. Or... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's hear about this deer behind you. This deer behind me, let's see. Okay, I had to think about, I had to look at my wall in front of me to see which buck is back there. Um, this buck was actually killed 20 years ago this fall, 2002. I had just left my job. You know, I worked in a factory for 20 years. Um, from the time I got out of high school for 20 years. Well, that fall I got out was 2002. In August 2002, I left that job. That fall, I killed this buck behind me. Um, trail cameras were just coming onto the scene at that time. When I shot that buck, I had one trail camera. It was a cam tracker. For those guys that have been around a while, remember those 35-millimeter cam trackers that you had to put the film in, and then you had to run to the one hour and get it developed? Well, I got a picture of this buck, 
about uh, a week before. And then uh, it was a Saturday morning in early November. It was actually November 7th. You know, my favorite days in November, November 7th and 8th. It was Saturday morning, November 7th. And uh, I was, uh, it was a frosty morning. It was one of the mornings where the frost is stuck to everything. So when the sun comes up, you know, the tree branches just glisten. The grass is covered with that white frost and the tree branches. And it, it almost looks like snow is on everything. And uh, this buck was really dark chocolate. And uh, he, uh, I was looking out in front of me and I had, I was in the corner. Actually, it's the stand in the corner where we take uh, the master class down where uh, oh, I, I say it's the best spot on the farm. There's been like seven or eight bucks over 150 inches killed right there. Well, this is one of them. And I was in that corner in that field out there to the west. There was, uh, it was, it was corn stubble that fall. And there was a group of about a half a dozen dozen fawns feeding right there in that corner. And I was up high enough that my scent was blowing right over. I, I thought, sure, they was going to bust me in any minute. But apparently my scent was going up and right over the top of them. And, uh, but I looked up to the other direction, to the east across the creek. This is where you and me were hunting the uh, fork tine buck here mm -hmm. about two years ago. I looked across the creek and everything was just glistening with frost. And out of this frosty thicket stops, steps this ch chocolate-colored buck. And I'll never forget the sight of him, that dark chocolate coat against that white sparkling brush behind him. And he walks right down the creek, right to where my stand was. And he's getting ready to cross the creek. And he gives me a broadside shot about, I don't know, 25, 30 yards before he crossed the creek. Well, I drew back and I shot and I missed him. <coughs> excuse me man i got excited about that buck and got choked up there but uh, so i missed him i shot across the creek and i missed him and when i did he spooked and he jumped the creek and he came right under me i shot again gave me time to draw another arrow and i shot him again <coughs> made a hit i hit him right in the shoulder and it sounded like a baseball bat was broken too. When I hit that shoulder, it was like somebody took a Louisville slugger and broke it over their knee. Did your mechanical broadhead penetrate? That you know, if I'd have been using a mechanical, <laughs> I'd have never got that buck. So anyway, he ran off with about half my arrow sticking out of him. <coughs> Man, what a time to get a coffin fit. But he ran off with my arrow sticking out of him, and I thought. Oh man, I hit him in the shoulder. This is going to be a, a long tracking job and I, I better just back out of here. So I backed out and this is, you know, 30 minutes after sun comes up. So I back out the opposite direction and that the deer ran, went to the house, called a friend of mine and he's, he's ready to come help me get him out. And I said, no, no, let, let's wait till noon. We're not going in there till lunchtime. I'm giving him all morning and you know, I'm talking five hours. So we let him sit for five hours and we come back and we pick up the, the trail. And after that deer, after the shot, the deer ran about 20 yards or so with no blood. And then all of a sudden there was blood three foot wide. And he didn't go 70 yards from, from where I hit him. And, and what happened was that arrow went right through both lungs and he was blowing blood out his nose and mouth. And, uh, if I'd have been using a mechanical, I would have probably never got that deer. And he's one of about uh, 
three that I can think of that I may not have got. I, I probably would have just wounded them and never, never found them had I been using mechanicals. And that is why I am against mechanicals right there. How much deer pee did you have on the ground? Well, at that time, uh, <laughs> I didn't have any deer pee. You know, I've never been a big fan of the deer pee deal. I'm but, just uh, trying to prime the pump a little bit before we sign off here, you know? Well, I probably had some of my own pee on the ground. <laughs> I don't think there's any deer pee. Well, you said it was only a couple minutes after daylight, so surely you've been able to hold it since then. Well, it was probably 30 minutes after daylight. I, I can still remember that the frost just glistening off that vegetation. That's, that's my favorite time in a stand. And even though we hunt 360 blinds and love the blinds, there's nothing better than that real heavy frost morning and you sitting in a tree stand. Every squirrel sounds like a booner coming through the woods. I mean, it's just, it's yep. when that, when that, uh, when, when it, the sun comes up and the forest comes alive, it's the, my most favorite time in a tree stand. I love it. Yeah. And by the way, the deer, I don't know how good of a view you can get, but we're going to post pictures and, um, but he scored 171 inches. He he was the first booner I killed on this farm. Very cool. So, you know, I talk about when I started, you know, each year, the top buck on this place would be about 150 inches. And then every three to four years, I'd get one bigger. Well, this was the year that I had one bigger and, uh, he scored 171. Very cool. All right, so what do you got planned for this week? Well, today after church, uh, I went out and checked a few cameras, the ones that I could get to real easy um, on the four-wheeler. Yeah, uh, I didn't want to stomp into some of the harder-to-get ones, but uh, the ones that were on field edges and such where I could drive up there, I, I checked some of them. Um, nothing of note from any of those that I checked today. I'm going to check uh, a few more and uh, – Got some spraying to do. Uh, I want to reseed some clover plots this fall. That's got uh, you know a lot of grass coming up and such. So I want to spray those to get everything killed with the clover and to, to get ready to reseed. The um, I think you all got some rain while you were out, and your and your corn and beans took a big jump. Um, I know we got heat advisories here this weekend. We're pretty dry right now, but I think we got a shot at some rain a little bit later in the week. So hopefully we get that. Yeah, we got rain in the forecast as well, and we did get an inch and six-tenths um, right after you and I recorded last week. We recorded on Saturday night last week when I was in the motel, and on Sunday the next day we got an inch and six-tenths, followed up the 4.2 inches we got the week before. We're in pretty good shape. If we could get another one right now, my corn is just starting to tassel and pollinate. So if we could get one right now, it would really help that corn. Yeah. And I, and I know when, after that rain, the heat turned on and really shot that corn up high, you said it had grown. How much it seemed like hey, it looked like mine grew three feet. I'm telling you, it literally looks like it grew three feet in the 12 days I was gone. That test well, corn that we're, that we're growing, it's taller than the Nutricrave by a, a, at least a foot, 18 inches taller. At least, at least we both have both of the products on our own farms and it's, it's, it's up there. Um, I was down in Southern Indiana all weekend and I want to tell you what, I know we got some listeners that live down there in Southern Indiana. That is some prime deer hunting, deer hunting country down there. Um, I was anywhere from Jasper down to Santa Claus. So, 
uh, ran into a podcast listener down there while we were there. Um, it's it's really awesome. odd to get recognized when you're just out doing your normal thing. But anyway, uh, I got to look at a bunch of really good corn and bean fields down there in southern Indiana. So I might need to go knocking on some doors. That's what I could think about when I was driving around from softball games down there. You wasn't driving around thinking about rainbow flags and gay Amish? No, can't say that I was. I'll I'll leave that in your uh, I'll I'll leave those in your uh, your kind of uh, uh, quality time while you're alone in the truck. <laughs> you know what's going to happen? Somebody's going to write in this week and send us a message that they know an Amish that was gay. I I don't think it'll happen because I don't think it will. The fathers the Amish fathers stay home and do their job, so. I, I just, I know that the, there's one simple thing and, um, I, I sat there around a group of girls. The last time I ever walked off a softball field was today around the, and I told them, I said, you know, I've been struggling with this decision for a long time, but I'm at peace about it because I know that I have more opportunities to help people in different ways. And that this group of 10 girls, uh, are the ones that I'll always remember as my last, you know, team that was together. And I'm at peace about that. But I told him at the end of it, I said, who you surround yourself with dictates more about who you are as a person than anything you can ever do by yourself. So whether there is, or there isn't a gay person out there that, that was Amish or grew up Amish, I don't know. Don't care. I'll pray for him just the same. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I know Amen. that the I know that the people in that community stand up for uh, what they believe and their faith in Christ, and I commend them for it. So that's all I got. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. God bless everyone. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, by a farm real estate company. 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.